This is Adam Lightman Bailey, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. This is Jennifer Rodarte with Compass, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Hey, this is Lane Johnson representing Compass and Aspen, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Hello, this is Steve, and we're with Wider Brothers of Compass in the D.C. metro area, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. This is Naomi Klein representing the Compass office in Beverly Hills, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. What up, everybody? This is Chef Jack Harris of the uh, Talk Team Podcast. This is Jade with the Jessica Northrup team from Denver, Colorado, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Guys, welcome to a brand new episode of Real Talk. Thank you always for being a loyal subscriber and listener. Uh, Just to give you guys some stats, we're about 2,300 downloads or streams on my platform, so I'm very appreciative of of your loyalty. Today I have uh, my friend, client, uh, a very well-respected guy in New York City, Gabe Stolman. Gabe is actually an owner of nine restaurants in Manhattan, mostly in the West Village. Hailing from my hometown in Fairfax, Virginia, Gabe moved to New York City after college, working as a bartender. Uh, He eventually became an opening partner at the Little Owl in the West Village, as some of you may know, maybe had brunch there. It's a very hard place to get into. And also Market Table in the West Village. Uh, today, he's the CEO of Happy Cooking NYC. Happy Cooking NYC is where he operates all of his restaurants under. Some of his restaurants you may have been to or know very well or are familiar with. Joseph Leonard, Fairfax, formerly known as Perla, Fedora, Jeffrey's Grocery, Bar Sardine, Studio, the GW Bar, uh, Simon Whale, and most recently, The Jones, located on Great Jones Street. So I encourage you all to follow Gabe and his recent initiatives during COVID-19 at Gabe Stolman, G-A-B-E-S-T-U-L-M-A-N, and information on all of his restaurants. Just to give you a little background about what's going on today, Gabe used to employ about 270 people. On March 15th, As the severity of this COVID-19 crisis began to set in, he had laid off approximately 265 of his employees. Many of them had worked for for him since he opened the business in 2009. Today, as you may know, or as you can even imagine, if you own the restaurant, if you tallied up any restaurant owner's unpaid tax, utilities, insurance, vendor bills, uh, all which are due, uh, Hugh being red, anywhere between one hundred to two hundred thousand dollars, depending on the location and expenses. So, Gabe is gracious enough to take his time today to join me to talk about what's going on in the industry, what's going on with those restaurants, what's going going on with the government initiatives, and also he's been featured in articles on Eater Magazine. He's been on Fox. He's been on MSNBC. He's talked about his problems. He's talked about how the government needs to come in and step in and reform some of the rules and changes that were implemented to help small businesses that were not necessarily covering the problems that New York City restaurants or restaurants in, in the United States have. So Gabe, thank you for joining and welcome. What, what, VA? Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me, Tuck. Um, hey, no, thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy. You have- Hey, we're, we're, we're all busy. It's okay. I'm hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you think I got anything worth sharing. Uh, you know, I think you have a lot worth sharing, especially from not just from a real estate perspective, because not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just a real estate channel. We're a business channel. But also, you know, as a New Yorker, I mean, you have 
fed medical staff. You've converted Jeffrey Cro- Jeffrey's groceries into an actual grocery store, which I know was one of your old goals. You've, you've fed all of your staff for free. Uh, I mean, the things that you have done for the community and New York City in general have, has been phenomenal. And on top of that, you're an active vocal, vocal activist uh, to Congress with all the letters that you've written. I mean, I mean, the things that you've done and, and what you have stepped up during this crisis is uh, something to be cherished and uh, recognized. Wow. I mean, those are, I mean, thank you. Number one, thank you. Um, those are very kind words. Um, it's interesting when you compress them like that and you just kind of rattle them off <laughs> it sounds uh I'm, I'm proud for a moment i'm like oh wow yeah i guess <laughs> for a moment. i never really stop and think of it as a group of initiatives I, I i i never think of them as a collective like i'm doing all of this in my mind it's always like laser like i'm just looking at this in a box right uh, one thing feeding first feeding first responders like I'm just looking at that. And then it's like, oh, all right, I got to shift my focus. There's this other, oh, we gotta, we're feeding our staff. So um, the way you rattle it off, it sounds more impressive than it probably is. <laughs> when, you, when you focus on one thing at a time and, you, and you're, you're trying to accomplish things one day at a time, but over the collective 10 weeks that we've been through, we've been in this COVID crisis, it, it, they add up. Talk, I'm sorry to say, but I did not know what your last question was. Oh, it wasn't even a question. Sorry. Cut out. It's a it's bad connection. No, what I was saying was when you're focused on so many things, but you're laser focused on one thing at a time, we've been in COVID, we've been in this COVID crisis for 10 weeks. I mean, things do yeah. add up. The things that you've done. Do yeah. yeah. So my, yeah, my, first sure. question, my first question to you is, and for those listeners, please Google his name, Gabe Stolman, Eater Magazine. And the letter that you wrote to Congress, has there been any update from that? Yeah, for a, a, a lot of movement. Um, so, look, um, what I, 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 wrote, I wrote a letter to our local um, city council member who is the speaker, the, 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 the council speaker. His name is Corey Johnson. Yeah. I wrote a letter to him and one of our state senators, Brad Hoyleman. And what I was writing to them about was there was a proposed bill in front of city council, uh, bill 1932-2020, which uh, Speaker Johnson had been a member of proposing. And what that bill was addressing was personal guarantees and personal liabilities on commercial leases. And that was something that has been since COVID and continues to be with uh, commercial lease clauses as they are majoritively in New York. Um, Generally, when I sign a lease in the city, uh, I sign a 10, 12, or 15-year lease. Yeah. And when I sign the lease, there is an element of it called a good guy clause. And the good guy clause very clearly puts out very specific parameters of what one must do as a tenant to exit early from your 10, 12, or 15-year lease. 
So if let's say my business isn't going well in year three, and I still have 12 years remaining on my lease, I can exercise the good guy clause. And what that means is I need to give my landlord typically between a three to six month notice. I tell my landlord in writing, uh, I'm going to be exiting and giving you back the keys. And depending on lease, you have to tell them three months in advance, four, five, or six. So I might be telling a landlord four months in advance, I want, my business is failing. I need to get out of my lease. There's 10 years left, whatever is left. Uh, I'm exercising the good guy clause. Then you are required by the terms of the contract to pay rent in full for those months of the notice. So if it's four months, then I need to know four months in advance that I'm failing, that I am failing, and I give my landlord that notice. I pay rent for those four months. Then at the end of the four months, I can give the landlord the keys and I can leave, and I have now fulfilled the good guy clause, and I'm no longer responsible for the remaining 12 years on the lease. At that moment, the landlord, in addition to getting the four months heads up and the four months of rent, it also gets to keep my security deposit. And typically, what a lot of people are familiar with is residential security deposits, which often are one month. Typically, commercial security deposits are three months at minimum. Yeah. So if I have a rent that's $20,000 a month, you're already holding $60,000 of my money, and then I needed to give you four months heads up, so then I paid you another $80,000. Now your landlord has the right to shop your place, bring people through, so if the landlord has enough notice to find a replacement tenant. Now, if you do not fulfill the good guy clause obligations to the letter T, if I don't give you four months notice, or if I do, the landlord has the ability to sue me under my personal guarantee. So the first thing that the landlord has the right to do is go after the LLC, the company. Yeah. And he can drive that company down to zero. And if the landlord has not captured all of their money, then they can come after you as an individual. It's on you. Yep. And that is the personal guarantee. And so, yeah, there was this bill that was proposed, which was suggesting the pandemic of COVID-19 is unique. And anybody who failed or went out of business as a result of COVID because the government forced us to close should not be held personally liable. The, the full extent of measures that any landlord or creditor should be able to take is against the company. And you can go against the company to the company's down to zero, but you should not be able to hold an individual personally liable because in this situation, it's the pandemic that created the failure. And it is, it is I think, not in good faith, you owe me money when the real me to operate. Rent does not allow any asset, like under normal circumstances, maybe. But the purpose of Bill 1932-2020 is to recognize these are not normal circumstances. And we will allow you, landlord, to go after the business, but that's where, it's, that's where it ends. Yeah. So when this came out, this when, when the pandemic hit, of course, me, like everybody around the country and across the globe, yeah, there's stresses and there's 
uncertainty and there's anxiety around the fact that for all the things you said in your in your intro, you know, I closed nine businesses in one day. I had to lay off 265 out of my 270 employees and colleagues. And that's really stressful. And there's legal liabilities to be concerned about. And there's tax implications to be like managing closing that many businesses and trying to figure out how to reopen and trying to figure out how to manage your finance. That should be enough. But to then also additionally be concerned that, wait a second, I can be sued for the full 10 years remaining on the lease. Yeah. And that can happen for all nine of my restaurants. So it's wild. So that's the background, which is long-winded. To answer your question, has there been any movement? Yes. There's been a lot of movement. Good. Two weeks ago, so the day of this recording, for uh, those listening, it is Saturday, May 23rd. Yeah. Two weeks ago, um, the city council voted and passed the bill. So city council voted in favor, 44 in favor, six opposed. The bill passed with flying colors. So the bill has now passed city council. It is scheduled to be signed into law on Tuesday, the the 26th of May. Mayor, Mayor de Blasio is scheduled to sign it, and then it becomes law. Now that's a victory, and I'm not going to lo- like look, you know, uh, what do they call it? Look a gift horse. That being said, even after De Blasio signs it per schedule, there are concerns that there are going to be some landlords who hire private attorneys to file for an injunction and okay. deem that this law is unconstitutional and that you cannot void a personal guarantee of a contract that somebody signed willingly and knowingly. And so there's going to be this ongoing legal battle. The important too is tremendous because all I want is, I want to try to reopen my businesses. And if I'm unsuccessful in doing so, all I want to know is that I give you the keys back, you can have your space, you can have your security deposit, leave my kids' college fund out of it, leave my home out of it, leave my savings account out of it. Take my business to zero, and then let's go our separate directions. That's all I want is, is, look, it is my responsibility as an owner and operator to figure out how to pivot. It is my my responsibility to find out what do I need to do differently. And I accept that challenge, and I accept that this is difficult, and I accept that I chose to go into business for myself. I accept all that. And I accept the contract that I signed initially. I just am asking for some like compassion, some empathy, and some legal protection purely on the personal guarantee. So it looks like things are moving in the right direction. What happens when a landlord files an injunction? How long, how long, is that new law really put into effect or is it essentially once it's signed, is it put on hold once an injunction is filed? So, um, I'm not a lawyer, but I will give you, I, I, I am quite here for a few minutes. Um, the, the bill has an expiration date. Okay. It's not, it's not for perpetuity. Uh, what the bill states is if you close your business 
between March 1 and September 30th as a result of COVID, then you are not personally liable. Okay. That's, that's one. If I choose to close in 2022 and blame it on COVID, I'm not protected by this bill. No. Right. If I choose to close in January of 2021, I'm not protected by this bill. Now, regarding an injunction, an injunction, which we can all but guarantee is going to be filed for, um, there's a legal due process, and it looks something like this. A landlord, any landlord, can hire a lawyer to file for an injunction deeming that this bill, 1932, is unconstitutional. Okay. Now, they cannot file until it's actually law. So they probably have the paperwork ready. And then once de Blasio signs it on Tuesday, they can just hit send. Yeah. Now, when they hit send, then it is up to the discretion of the judge that receives this. And the judge that receives the application for injunction has three choices to make. Number one, they can look at it and throw it out and tell the lawyer of the landlord, your claim that this is unconstitutional uh, was not substantiated or backed up. You need a better argument. Get out of here. That's option one, and a judge can throw it out. Option two is the complete opposite. And the judge can say, you, and and this is like when Trump has tried to um, say certain people can't come into the country, and then federal judges have filed injunctions and said, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, throw it out. So, so the uh, judge could go the complete opposite end, and the judge could say, lawyer, you make some valid points, not so valid that I'm going to stop and block the law, yep. and not so weak that I'm going to throw it out. Sure, I'm going to choose the middle. I'll hear your case in court. And so those are the choices. You throw it out, you say that the law is unconstitutional, or you say, I'll see you in court. I, I, I want to... I want to keep you say you have convinced to stop it, but you have not convinced me to throw you out. And during that time, the law stands. So if it can get drawn out just until September 30th, the court case, then basically the law stands for as long as it was meant to stand. Sure, sure. Okay. So in your estimation, it'll most likely be option three, and you'll really have to make some hard choices between then and September. September 30th. Yeah. And and this is, yes. And so this is also another very difficult part, which is there are a myriad of guesses about when the restaurant industry will be allowed to open. Right. Uh, Some guesses have the, some guesses have the earliest as mid July. Okay. Right. Because, um, the way that Cuomo has explained everything for New York State is he divided New York State into 10 regions. Yeah. And then within the 10 regions, there are uh, four phases of opening. Yeah. And then before you can begin phase one, there are seven metrics right. that need to be met. Yeah. New York City currently has achieved four out of the seven metrics. We have three metrics to go. There are guesses that we will be in a place to begin phase one sometime around mid-June. In about two to three weeks from now is when phase one might begin. And then the idea is if things stay on track, 
every two weeks, you might be able to begin another phase so long as there's not a reversal in the pandemic's um, infection rate. Mid-June is phase one, July 1st, phase two, mid-July phase three is phase three. And within that, there will be limited occupancy and regulations and all of that. The more conservative estimates that have come out of de Blasio's mouth himself puts it at Labor Day. Right. Wow. Now, this is where the Venn diagram of overlapping circles lies. If I'm not allowed to open until Labor Day, which is September 8th, and Bill 1932 expires on September 30th, I have 22 days from when I open to decide if it's going to work or not. It's mental. It's, it's, it's insane. I mean, what restaurant in, with, is going to know in 22 days? Normal operator operators is going to know in that sort of a time. And also, what percent of the population is willing to just come back all at once Let's just say after Labor Day at full capacity. I, it's it, not. It's not. Well, no, even, even if we open at Labor Day, it won't be full capacity. Correct. Uh, even Labor Day. Oh, so you're actually in a position where after Labor Day, I open limited occupancy, whatever it may be, and I need to determine without maximum occupancy and with a hesitant diner psyche I need to make a decision in 22 days if I can make this work or not. And if I don't make my decision before September 30th, then my personal liability is back alive. Right. So I'll say this. For anybody who makes the decision now that they don't want to come back or they walk away, this bill helps you tremendously. Like, So there's a lot of people that are going out of business now and saying, I'm not coming back. There's the Lucky Strikes, there's the Pegu Clubs, there's the Gem Spa, there's thousands. Poro, NYC. Yeah, this bill, this bill helps them. It does. For everybody who wants to try to reopen, it might not help us enough. Because it's not working, we will no longer be protected. So it really only helps you if you don't want to give it a go. But on another thought process is this. These restaurants like the Pegu Club and Toro NYC, I mean, they've been around for a long time. I'm sure they have some big financial backers. Don't you think they closed on purpose so that they could take advantage of this bill so that they could reopen? They can save their assets and just reopen right afterwards? Uh, I don't think that that is a universal for all of them. Um, all right, look, uh, I, I don't know the economics or the positions of Toro's owners or of uh, Pegu's owners. Mm -hmm. Um, What, what I believe, like, I don't think Toro is going to try to reopen in a different location. Right. I don't think Pegu is going to try to reopen a different location to my understanding. Right. Audrey Saunders moved to Seattle at some point years ago. Right. The guys that own Toro, the majority of their restaurants are in Boston. Boston, yeah. Like they Boston. might, yeah, they might just say, eh. Forget it. And I don't know. Look, I don't know them, so I don't but want for to. you, I mean, it's, is look, it not a strategy else? or thought process for you to say, okay, let's just close everything now so, so you can save your assets and then have something left for when you want to reopen come in the next few months or the future? Or does it not work? Assumes that I have that. Well, 
it's way too complicated. Yeah. One that assumes that I have assets worth saving. Okay. Right. And the only assets that I have worth saving are, you know, physical, like glassware, silverware, plates, yeah. tables, chairs, uh, kitchen stoves, right? Yeah. Those are the yeah. assets. My bank account, vendors, I still, all of my bills come due. I'm in the red. So right. actually, what assets are there? Right. Now, the other, the other part that you also touch base upon, making a decision to close everything and then like, you know, huddle and then go find some cheap rents. Well, then that means the 265 people that I parted ways with, some of them, including our shared brother, like, no, like, that means I'm dogging the people that I love. Can't do that. Yeah. I, I'm, I got, I got to fight for them yeah. as much as like, I will fight for them. Um, if I, if I don't, I mean, I'm not the person I want to be. Right. Um, so no, like it's not, it's, it's not as easy as just shrink. Now right. I will say this for anybody that goes out of business now from a PR standpoint, it's the most forgiving time, right? If you closed a restaurant last November, Different. they would be like, Oh no, it'd be like, Oh, he failed. He yeah. couldn't cut it. Right. Yeah. You don't reopen now. I, I mean, there's compassion. There's so it's, compassion. It's, it's, it's compassion and it's forgiveness. There's no, there's no stigma attached to it. You, have you made any decisions on any of your restaurants right now? No, I mean, yes, yes, I have. The decision as of this call on May 23rd is that I want to, I want to reopen everything. Good. But, yeah. but my ability to reopen everything is based on some factors that are not in my control. Right. The factors that will allow me to reopen are a few fold. I signed leases of the neighborhood's demographic based upon a check average that I knew people could sustain and based upon my quote-unquote expertise on how many turns I could do on a seat at a certain check average on a given day and my quote-unquote expertise on understanding dining trends and tastes. And so you take all these things that I believe to be skilled and knowledgeable of, understanding how a room and a floor plan can lay out, understanding the kind of foods people want to eat, understanding how to make a vibe that people want to be in. All of these things factor into calculating a prospective revenue. Yeah. Once I know... I think I can make this much money on a space. Um, I then look at a rent and I say, all right, can I sustain this rent? Can I sustain a rent? Well, the answer about whether or not I can sustain the rent is based upon how much money I think I can make. Now what we're facing is I'm going to be allowed to open at some point and I'm going to have 25% of my seats, 50% of my seats. How can I pay... 100% of a rent that was predicated on full occupancy if I don't have full occupancy. How 
can I pay 100% of my labor, pay 100% of my seats? And furthermore, the 25 or 50% of seats that we do get, they will not be as efficient as they used to be. It would be naive to think that you're going to get half your seats and they're going to be as packed as they were pre-COVID. So it's actually less. I'm going to have fewer seats and the seats that I have will be less busy. And they will be less busy for a multitude of reasons, some being purely your hesitation. Not everybody wants Cuomo said there's gonna be a bunch of furthermore, there's gonna be a bunch of people that lost their jobs and just don't have discretionary money to spend. No money. So whatever seats we get is gonna be fewer. Yeah, whatever seats I have will be less. And yeah. the seats that I do have will make less money than they made. So the point is, have I made the decision about my restaurants? I want to open them all. The only way I will be able to open them all is if my landlords write new lease deals. Yeah. We need to completely revisit the rent structure across the board. It has to become a percentage rent, a percentage based on I'll pay for how many seats I have, and I don't know how comfortable people are dining. So right. it's got to be a percentage-based rent until that point. Right. Um, that's one factor. Another factor that will dictate whether – so that is not in my control. So I want to open all my restaurants. My ability to open my restaurants will be determined by my landlord's willingness Mm -hmm. to negotiate. Another factor that will dictate whether or not I get to open all my restaurants is going to be our our Congress, our, our Senate and House, and whether or not they can get their shit together and make changes to the payroll protection program loans that are out there. In the current structure, it is inefficient and ineffective for businesses that are not allowed to be if you give somebody a loan and you say you have to spend it in eight weeks yes i did get approved but like all the restaurants i got the money but i can't i can't all of them and that's a whole nother podcast about how chase is a horrible bank and (laughs) i i apply through chase myself I got approved. Chase is a horrible bank. um, And I will be leaving Chase when the time comes. (laughs) Um, I've been, I've been a Chase customer for 15 years. In 2019, we processed $25 million worth of revenue through Chase. And they did not get me any loans. I ultimately got approved by applying with another bank. Oh my goodness. Sorry to hear that. Did tough. not get me through. That is tough. It's gonna go through that. However, though, what is clear about the PPP is the following. It is designed to fix for what is an 18-month problem. All right. It is designed to give us money to contribute towards payroll, and we have eight weeks to spend it from the moment we get it. But how do I hire people, and you have to get 100% of your census account, how do I hire people to work at a restaurant that is not allowed to operate? 
How do I hire people to work at a restaurant when unemployment pays them more than their job used to pay them? Of course. Right? It make any sense. So there are material problems. And once again, so my ability to open all my restaurants is determined on whether or not there are changes made to the PPP. That is something not in my control. So we have these two things that I don't control. Lease renegotiation and PPP modifications. If those two things happen, the probability of me opening all my restaurants increases to the upper 90%. If these two things do not happen, the probability goes under 50% that they all survive. It's that easy. You two know, little changes can give me a 98% chance of all of my restaurants. And without them, I have less than a 50% chance of them making it. Why aren't, or maybe I don't know this, but why aren't all restaurants in the nation getting together and speaking to Congress about the modifications on the PPP? I will correct and regional alliances and coalitions that have formed, bring restaurants together, that have lobbyists that are on Capitol Hill. We are doing this. Yeah. However, um, Donald Trump, Steve Mnuchin, and Mitch McConnell believe that the plan as they wrote it is great and that it doesn't need change. And they're not hearing it. Their, their, their position is that is is they, they, they don't want to hear us. They don't want to hear it. They believe they got it right. Yeah, they don't want to go I mean, back you, on you, their, they don't want to go back on their decision or admit that. They don't want to admit that they could have, they don't want to admit that there's a better way to do it. Right. You know, we've literally heard uh, the Republican senators say, I think before we put any more funding and I think before we make any more changes, let's just wait and see. Let's give the money that we put out there a chance. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's stubborn. It's unfortunate. It's partisan politics. It's unnecessary. It's like, look, I'm going to give you a crazy stat. Um, I think it is uh, more than 30, like more than 30%, or it might even be as high as 40% of the people on unemployment today worked in restaurants yeah okay of the 36 million people of unemployment between 30 and 40 percent worked in restaurants hold that stat okay. 30 to 40 percent of unemployment now of the 660 billion dollars of ppp funding nine percent went to restaurants hmm what are the so we rep we represent 35% of unemployment. We only got 9% of funding. And the funding doesn't work for our industry because of social distancing requirements. Like, it's, it, it doesn't, like, it's, it's, here's what I want to say to the government. 91% of the money you put out there went to other industries. It went to the barbershop. It went to the tech company. It went to the automobile company. It went to the law firm, the accounting firm, the real estate firm. It went to the Los Angeles Lakers, right? It went to, yeah. it went to all of these places, right? 
And let's just say, Mnuchin, Mitch, you got it right for all of those people. You got it right. 91% of where your money went, let's just say it's working for them. It doesn't work for restaurants at all because we're not allowed to open. And if we are allowed to open, we don't allow to have enough occupancy. So the, the money we got, it's not working for us at all. And we were 35 of unemployment. You've got to change the rules around PPP at minimum for our industry. It has to change. It doesn't make any sense. What, what are you going to do with the money now that you have funding? Pay rent? I'm going to hold, I'm going to, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I put it in a separate account and I'm not touching it. If. Essentially, it's a loan that you have to pay back because it, it's an interest, it's an interest bearing loan. Yes. It is an interest-bearing loan which will bury my company in debt that I cannot get out of, that I have to pay back on an 18-month amortization schedule. It is an interest-bearing loan unless I spend 75% on payroll, and I currently have an inability to spend 75% on payroll with closed restaurants. Yeah. So I cannot keep it. I will not keep it as a loan. I will wait till the last minute and hope for the laws and rules to change, and if they don't, then I'm going to be forced to give the money back. Right. Right. Well, listen, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, What do you want to tell tell your listeners that are in the real estate world? What kind of message do you have? Whether they work as commercial sales, leasing agents, residential agents, they might might also be landlords. What do you want to, what kind of message do you have for them? Um. I think landlords and tenants right now are acting like they are on opposite sides. And it is uh, tenants like myself are thinking, landlord, I need a break. And landlords are saying, how can I give you a break? I got mortgage. I got real estate. I got this. And what I think really is not happening and really should happen is I think landlords and tenants should join and go against the banks and say, banks, you're gonna have to put a hold on mortgage. Landlords and tenants should come together and go to government and say, you're gonna have to put a pause on real estate tax. Tax, yeah. Here's here's how we get out of this as a society if we wanna have any semblance of community and small business. There needs to be complete rent forgiveness for periods where you are mandated closed by the government. Not rent deferment, forgiveness. I need to not be held liable for any rent that accumulated at a time when I was barred from being in business. Right. Similarly, there needs to be mortgage forgiveness or deferment to the back end of, 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 a, of a mortgage deal. I understand if it's not deferment for mortgages, but it, at minimum needs to be like great. The, the banks on PPP, because there was a five. So the bank's location from you and me and giving it to the SBA, the banks made 33 million. Is that right? That much? That's, That's why you're not going to get mortgage payments. You got 33 billion. It was already baked in. You got your money. Yeah. So I think what needs to happen is there needs to be breaks and concessions 
There needs to be ba- breaks and concessions. There needs to be percentage rent deals for restaurants and bars, percentage based on revenue at minimum until we have 100% occupancy and a vaccine. And then you can talk to your tenant one by one and determine, do you want to keep a percentage rent deal or do you want to go to a more standard to broker? Let's work together. Like, I believe this. I believe as, as tenants, if we run a successful business, we can make money, right? If we run a successful business, landlords make money. Money. If landlords run a successful business, banks make money. We all need each other, all right? So if you squeeze the tenant out and you make it insufferable and you do not give us enough oxygen or rope to survive, we are going to disappear and you're going to be left with a block of empty storefronts. That is the message to the landlords. Avenues. With you having a block of empty storefronts, yes, with you having no, with you having a portfolio of available spaces and nobody to rent it to, you're going to default. Then the bank, like, it, if you stop me from surviving, you will be the next ripple. Then you will not survive. And then if you don't survive, then the banks are going to need a bailout, and they won't survive. So it's like we need to stop looking at this as the people on the bottom need to bear the weight and pay the tax and borrow the loans and pay it back. And instead, this needs to be a top-down solution. And the banks need to say, I'm going to take a pause on this shit. Give me the money later, Landy. Then Landy needs to say, cool, I'm going to pass the savings on to tenant. And then tenant can say, thank you. I'm going to try to survive. All right. The, the message I would give to brokers is something that has irked me for 10 years, like well before COVID. Yeah. <laughs> is this notion of um, fair market value and per square foot pricing yeah, that people like to apply to areas. The uh, per square foot price of this area is this. That's the fucking way that the real estate and commercial real estate industry likes to rent places. It is fucking stupid. And I need to curse because it is irritating. What a corner place in the West Village with a great sidewalk and wrap around floor to ceiling French doors gets per square foot should have zero bearing on what a mid block West Village closet space on a shittier block gets. <laughs> it should have zero bearing. I don't care if they're in the same neighborhood. That's a great space. That's a don't tell me that the great space was able to get this many hundred dollars per square foot and I have this many pair per square foot. So it's just a multiplication. No, you have an unattractive space. That's an attractive space. Your space should not get the same per square foot price. The other thing is, if a slide that by your 5000 I think you need to be looking at this like everything else in life. When you buy in bulk, the price goes down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if I buy one bottle of of of, uh, of of vodka, it's this much. If I buy a case, 
the price goes down. If I buy five cases, the price goes down further. And if I buy 10 cases, the price goes down further. Like anything else. So I rent your 400 square foot space. Huh? Yeah, it's just like anything else. Yeah. So your 400 square foot space versus your 1500 square foot space versus your 5,000 square foot space, why are there never uh, breaks on the multiplication? Like, hello, real estate world. <laughs> like, <laughs> I need brokers to start slapping landlords into some level of sensibility. This is common sense. No, man, you got 5,000 square feet. Don't try to get the same price per dollar per square foot. It's crazy. And, and yo, like brokers need to tell landlords, yeah, I know that your friend got that for his corner spot. Your spot's not as good. Like brokers need to tell land, like your spot's not as good. Trust me. Trust me. We do. We do. It's just that there's a combination of two things. Sometimes we need, the brokers want the business so bad, they'll, they'll just say whatever they need to say to get the business. And two, the landlords are simply just trying to get as much money per square foot as possible. And sometimes they get away with it. But I think with the rise of Amazon yeah. and the rise of e-commerce, the retail landscape is definitely on a downward slope from an owner operator standpoint so that you're probably, they're probably not going to get the amounts that they were getting in the past. And that kind of has passed that retail ship has sailed and that the thought process will be that retail rents will be going down in the near future or actually has already been going down. And it'll just continue to go down as we move into the, uh, into the post COVID world. So gig, listen, uh, I, completely, I completely agree with you. Uh, I took an hour of your time. Thank, thank you so much. Oh, man. It's my blessing. Uh, I, you know, what I want to do is, if it's okay with you, let's do another follow-up on, you know, maybe as we get towards September, let's see what happens. Uh, I'm obviously wishing you the best, wishing you all the best with your businesses, with the retail spaces. I hope you don't move. I hope you get to keep all of your spaces. Every location that you guys have under Happy Cooking is a very prime. So uh, I sincerely hope for the best. And uh, I would like to hopefully get you to come back on and maybe we can discuss some of the modifications that maybe Congress has made, PVP has done, uh, or with regards to some of the laws that, you know, are hopefully implemented in your benefit. So uh, we can catch up on that. But uh, again, uh, for the listeners, uh, follow Gabe at Gabe Solomon on Instagram, G-A-B-E-S-T-U-L-M-A-N on Instagram. Uh, Happy Cooking NYC is his website. Uh, check out his restaurant list there. And uh, if you have any questions, obviously, feel free to reach out to him and I. Thank you again for listening. And uh, uh, Gabe, thank you again for your time.